All right, so before we get into the second half of John chapter two, what I wanna do briefly is I want to touch on this topic of the attributes of God. Now, I think that's important, and perhaps the Lord led me to do this this weekend, um, because it's so important that during difficult times, like the times that we're facing right now, that we focus intentionally on how big God is. When we talk about the Lord's attributes, we're speaking about who he is and what he is like. All right, so here's just some of his attributes. We know that God is absolutely omnipotent, right? Omni, all potent power. God is all powerful. That's our God. And not just that, he's omniscient. He's all knowing. Now we saw last week the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and he demonstrated those two divine attributes. He demonstrated omnipotence when he turned the water into wine. Who does that but God? And not only that, he demonstrated his omniscience in the fact that he's all-knowing. He could see straight into the heart of Nathaniel. He knew exactly uh, who, who Nathaniel was and what, where he had been uh, that day. And so all-powerful, all-knowing, omnibenevolent. God is all-good. He is all-loving. How, how many of you guys are really happy about that one, right? That especially blesses me, right? Because sometimes um, if you're not careful, as you're focusing on how big and immense God is, he may wrongly, but he may become impersonal to you. No, 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 don't go down that road. God is absolutely an all-loving, personal God. We also look at his, um, um, he is omnisapient. That means he's all-wise. He always makes the right choice. And he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. But that's not all. We also see the aseity of God. That means that God is self-existent. He told Moses, I am that I am. (laughs) In other words, I don't depend on anybody. I'm independent. I am self-existent. And he's eternal. God has no beginning and no end. God exists above the timeline. He is timeless. And God is infinite. That means that God has no limits. Infinite, man, he's all. And by the way, this is one of the ways that we know that there's only one God. Because you can't have two infinites. Infinite is infinite. You can't have two alls. All is all. And God is immutable. That means that God cannot change and God is absolutely holy. That means that he's pure and he's set apart. I could go on and on and on. The Lord has so many attributes. For example, God is transcendent. That means that God exists above and beyond the space-time material universe that he created. God is transcendent above and beyond it and God also is eminent. That means that he exists within the material universe and yet he is distinct from it. Now when we talk about God's eminence, don't misunderstand, we're not talking about pantheism, right? Pantheism, pan, all, theism, God. Pantheism teaches that all is God and God is all. In other words, the material universe is God or at least part of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The relationship that God, the true God, has with the universe is like the relationship that an artist 
has with their painting. Just as an artist creates and designs their painting, so the Lord has created and the Lord has designed the universe. And so regarding him being eminent in his creation, yes, he is present in it, yet he is distinct from it. Okay, so what is he doing in his eminence? He's the creator and, listen, he is the sustainer of all things. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, that in him all things consist, that literally Jesus Christ holds all things together. He's creator and he's sustainer. There's so many more attributes of God. You can check them out for yourself. You can go to Got Questions. You can go to Blue Letter Bible. You can uh, purchase or, or look up any conservative theological text on systematic theology, but it's important, ladies and gentlemen, to do this. Why? Because when it's difficult and when it's dark, we have a tendency to focus on the problem and the difficulty and on the darkness, and what we need to do is deny our flesh, and we need to take a break, and we need to focus on how big our God is, and when we see how big God is, we see how little our problems can become. And so that's why this is important, what we're talking about. And so as we meditate on who God is and what he's like, several things happen. Like what? Well, we see that it helps us to see how immense God is. And what does that do? That should move us to get on our knees and worship the Lord, because he's an awesome God. But not only that, it helps us, as I've already said, keep things in perspective. It keeps ourselves in perspective, right? How many people allow themselves to get a really big head, and they think they're all that, and it's all about me, myself, and I, and they're the dominant theme in their life. Well, all you gotta do is focus for five minutes on the attributes of God, and you'll realize, and I'll realize, how small we really are. It keeps us in perspective. It keeps others in perspective. That problem person, that, that situation, that intimidating man or woman, um, that, that person who's causing you to have fear. Listen, just spend some time focusing on the attributes of God, and that person that you're afraid of or is intimidating you will in your mind and in your heart, go to their rightful place. Problems. God gets bigger as we focus on him. Problems get smaller. And I love this last one. It motivates us to go deeper in our relationship with him. As we focus on the true God and we focus on his attributes and his characteristics, that needs to drive us to him because he is a personal God. Ladies and gentlemen, it absolutely amazes me that an, an, an infinite, immense, awesome God even notices me. And not only does he notice me, he loves me, and he wants to be in a relationship with me. Are you kidding? Right? And so here's what I know, that God notices you as well, and he loves you as well, and he wants to be in a relationship with you as well. You say, well, how do you know for sure? One verse, for God so loved the world. I quote this every week, don't I? <laughs> for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever, there's the personal part, right, world, well, that's a big place, but whoever, that's personal. 
that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You think if God didn't wanna have a relationship with you, you think if he did not wanna have a relationship with you that he would not have come? He wanted to have a relationship with you and that's why God clothed himself in human flesh, lived a perfect life after being born of a virgin and went to a cross and bled out to pay for your sins and mine and he died on a cross and he rose again the third day. Do you think he would have done all that if he didn't wanna have a relationship with you? Of course he loves you and of course he wants to have a relationship with you but you gotta turn to him in repentance and faith and receive him as the savior and the Lord of your life. And so last week we saw Jesus Christ, he displayed the divine attribute of omnipotence, he turned water into wine, he displayed the divine attribute of omniscience, he could perceive Nathaniel, who he was, where he'd been, and, and, and uh, we see that Christ, last week, omniscient, we're gonna see it again this week. Okay, so what does the word omniscience mean? Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, who by the way has an awesome book on systematic theology, um, don't ever check your brain at the door when you come to church, and don't ever check your brain at the door when you read Norman Geisler, uh, but I love his explanations of the attributes of God. Omniscience, God knows everything. And sadly, unlike some modern day theologians wrongly think that he doesn't know the future, no, 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 ladies and gentlemen, Listen, if God doesn't know the future, that's a God, that God is too small for me to worship. God knows everything. He knows the past, he knows the present, he absolutely knows the future, he knows the actual, he even knows the possible. And since Christ is fully God and fully man, he's omniscient, right? And it was demonstrated by the fact that when he saw Nathaniel coming, you remember this last week? He saw straight into his heart and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And not just that, not only could he see in Nathaniel's heart, he could see the private place where Nathaniel had been earlier that day. Behold, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. And how did Nathaniel respond to the omniscience of Christ? He looks at Jesus and he goes, quote, you're the son of God and you're the king of Israel. And so Jesus knew what was inside of Nathaniel's heart. Jesus knows exactly what is inside of my heart and your heart as well. At the end of chapter two, we're gonna briefly revisit this doctrine, this um, attribute of omniscience, and we're gonna see that Jesus knows all people, and he doesn't just know all people, he knows what is in all people. All right, so let's finish up chapter two. Right now, if you're looking at John chapter two, verse 13, can you please say amen? amen. All right, so here we go. Verse 13. So the wedding of Cana is over, and it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, so at least three times a year, Jewish families from all over the Roman Empire, right, would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for three Jewish feast days. They would go for Passover, this is by, I think, Deuteronomy 16, 16. They would go for Passover, they would go for Pentecost, and they would go for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
So three times at least a year. Jews who are part of the diaspora, right? Jews who are scattered during the Old Testament times in, in, in the first century AD, right? So what would they do? They would come, whether it's from Italy area, modern day Italy, or whether it's from Macedonia or Achaia, modern day Greece, or whether it's from modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, right? Or Syria, um, or Northern Africa, on boats, Mediterranean Sea, right? They're all coming for these three Jewish feast days they came by the hundreds of thousands, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so in our text, Passover is getting close. And so Jesus and his disciples, they pack their bags and they're on their way to Jerusalem. All right, look at verse four. It says that in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and Jesus saw money changers sitting there. All right, so the animals that we see in verse 14, these oxen, these sheep, these pigeons, were to be used as sacrifices in the temple. And because it's Passover, we know that the lambs were in high demand, especially the lambs that were one-year-old uh, male lambs without blemish and without spot. And so the lambs are in high demand because part of observing Passover was that you had to sacrifice a lamb and then eat that lamb with your family just like the ancient Israelites did right before they made their exodus from Egypt. So it's Passover and Jesus is in Jerusalem and Jesus goes to the temple and as he goes there, what does he find? On the court of the Gentiles, he finds merchants selling animals there on that massive court. So the court of the Gentiles was a, the large outer court on either side of the temple. If you see the tall building, say amen in the middle. So inside the tall building is the holy place and the holy, behind the curtain, the holy of holies. And then you have the uh, other various courts within the inner wall. Um, but then the two big courts, that's the court of the Gentiles. The whole temple complex was huge. It was beautiful. Um, approximately, in, Her in, in Jesus' time, right, so Herod's temple. So you got, you got uh, Solomon, he builds a temple, but then 586, Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonians destroyed the temple, but then what we see is that the temple was rebuilt, Zerubbabel, his, his, his guys, and then later we see that Herod comes on the scene and Herod gives a facelift to the temple. He basically builds a big box through slave labor on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham was gonna sacrifice Isaac until the angel stopped him right there. And so Herod comes on the scene, he builds a big box. By the way, um, how many of you guys see the four walls that make up the box? If you do, say amen. Okay, and so how many of you guys on TV have ever seen the wailing wall, the western wall? You ever see the Jews and they're praying at the wall? Well, guess what? That western wall is still there today and it's the western wall of the Temple Mount and the same boulders, the same rocks, that Herod, the lower part of the wall that Herod put in place, they're still there today. If you go with us to Israel, we'll take you there. And you can pray at the Wailing Wall. The first time I went up on the Temple Mount, it caused me to start to cry because I was overwhelmed that I was actually on the spot, yes, the spot, where the temples once were 
and um, it's a little overwhelming. Um, scholars say you could approximately fit 25 to 26 football fields on the Temple Mount. And so what was the purpose of the Temple Mount? Well, one of the big purposes is called the Court of the Gentiles, and so one of the big purposes was this was a place where Gentiles could actually gather and hear about the true God. How many of you guys think that's important? Right? But here's what's happening. In the day of Jesus, something else is happening that tarnished the reputation of that hallowed place. Jesus quoted Isaiah 50, 56, 7 to let us know what's going on. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. prayer. Have you guys ever heard that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much? Yeah. And so my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you guys, you make it a den of robbers. And so on the court of the Gentiles, it's supposed to be a holy place where Gentile seekers from all over the world can come and rub shoulders with faithful Jews and learn about the true God, but instead of prayer and witnessing taking place, something else was taking place. In Jesus' time, on that court, they had set up a huge marketplace, and certain people were making a huge profit. And Jesus calls it a den of robbers, which tells me that this whole marketplace was a racket. And so apparently, the racketeering that was going on involved two things. Number one, the sale of animals to be used in the temple sacrifices, but then number two, the paying of the temple tax. And so because it was Passover, again, Jewish families, what did they need to do? They needed to buy a lamb and sacrifice that lamb and then eat that lamb for their Passover dinner with their family. And so if they're coming from Italy or from Greece or Northern Africa, right, and they're on boats, they're not gonna bring a lamb and so they're gonna buy a lamb when they get there. But guess what? There's lots of lambs for sale on the, on the court of the Gentiles, but they're overpriced. And not only that, the profiteering didn't end there because apparently it also involved the paying of the temple tax. All Jewish men, 20 years old and older, had to pay the half shekel temple tax, and many did that during Passover, and to pay that tax, they had to use Tyrian coinage. That's all that was accepted because Tyrian coinage had a high content of silver. You say, what's Tyrian coinage? Well, you remember your New Testament map. You remember you have Judea, Mediterranean Sea. You got Samaria. You got Galilee. You've got Syria. And then you got Phoenicia, and what are the two main cities in Phoenicia? You have Tyre and Sidon. And so Tyrian coinage comes from Tyre. It has a high content of silver, and it's all that they accept on the Temple Mount in order to pay for these animals. The problem is you got Jewish families from all over the Roman Empire, and all they have is their foreign currency. Not good enough. You can't use that here. So on the Temple Mount, Jesus sees it, there's money-changing tables where you could exchange your foreign currency for Tyrian coinage, and of course, there's a fee involved in that exchange. For Jesus to call this a den of robbers tells me that the animals, the price of the animals was inflated, way inflated, highly inflated, 
and the fee for the exchanging of the money was also highly inflated. Ladies and gentlemen, this market, it should have been an honest market. But instead, it's a corrupt market. And not only that, it never should have been on the Temple Mount. (laughs) It probably should have been down in the Kidron Valley or somewhere. And so Jesus sees all this, and it absolutely breaks his heart. Why? Because what a turnoff this was for Gentiles who came to Jerusalem in order to learn about the one and true God. These are polytheistic pagans. What an opportunity for them to come to a place where they can learn about Yahweh, the one and only true God. And when they arrived at the temple, they expected a holy environment, but instead where they see dishonesty, they see corruption, the Lord sees all this. Now, here's what didn't happen. Jesus didn't see all this, right? And then all of a sudden get so angry that in his anger he sinned and absolutely blew a gasket. No, as you guys hear me probably say every single week, Jesus Christ was and is the sinless savior. He's the lamb without blemish and without spot. He never sinned one time. But boy, did he get mad. How many of you guys know that you can get mad without sinning? How many of you guys this week, when you turned on your news, got mad? Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. We should get angry when we see things that are happening that are unjust. And Jesus Christ, the holy God, he burned with holy anger. Let's see what what he does now in verse 15. And making a whip, a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples, can you imagine them on the sidelines? Their eyes are like huge right now. What's going on? Right, his disciples remembered that it was written, quote, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69, verse nine. And so I want you to picture the scene, right? With eyes blazing, with veins bulging. What does Jesus do? He makes a whip and he goes to work. Now this is the cleansing, the first cleansing of the temple. He's gonna do it again. So the first cleansing of the temple, John records right here in John chapter two, this is the beginning of his public ministry, but then at the end of his public ministry, right before he's crucified, he's going to cleanse the temple once again. And I want you to try to imagine, try to imagine that you're there, right? and you're on the Temple Mount, and you're seeing all of this take place, and there's the Messiah, and he's got a whip, and the whip is thrashing, and the tables are overturning, and the coins are rolling, and the oxen are mooing, right? And merchants are running for their lives. John Phillips, one of uh, my commentators that I read almost every week, not every week, but he said this. He goes, alone and single-handed, Jesus had taken on the establishment, including the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, those are the rulers of Israel. That's just the high court 
of Israel, including the Sanhedrin and the powerful Sadducean party, which both sponsored and doubtless profited uh, from this traffic, and Jesus had overthrown the entrenched system of evil that posed as a public benefit. Did you guys notice during the whole scene that no one tried to stop Jesus? One pastor I heard years ago, he said, nobody wanted to take a shot at the title. Why? He's the Messiah. And whether they believed he was a Messiah or not, the awesome presence of the Messiah that day, everybody's backing up. Listen, please don't have a weak view of Jesus. No, 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 Jesus wasn't as powerful, so powerful, they're all backing up as he is cleansing the temple. And so, of course, the establishment, they don't like this. The Sanhedrin doesn't like this. The Sadducees and Pharisees don't like this. But how many of you guys think Jesus cared whether they liked it or not? You see, Jesus Christ wasn't trying to become elected as the Messiah. He was the Messiah. He wasn't looking for a popular vote. All he was concerned about was the truth. And he saw something out of whack. He saw something going on that was clearly wrong and he took a stand and he called it out. And ladies and gentlemen, let's do a little bit of application here. Maybe, maybe there's something that you're aware of, something going on somewhere that's clearly wrong as well. And maybe, maybe it's time for you to stand up and call that thing out. You say, I can't do that, there'll be consequences. I'm not trying to be the Holy Spirit here today, but if the, if, if, if the Lord is calling you to take a stand and speak up and call something out, you need to obey the Lord. You need to do that. Don't listen to fear. Step out in faith. And so now in verse 18, it says this. So the Jews said to him, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, John was a Jew, he wrote the gospel. There's thousands of Jews in that time who knew and loved Jesus. So we're not talking about the Jews in that sense, we're talking about the establishment, the religious leaders. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his what? His body, okay, so can you see the scene? They're backing up, but they're like, what side do you, do you show us um, that, that gives you the right to do these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple. I don't know if he pointed at himself or not, but destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it. Now, of course, according to verse 21, he's not talking about the big temple structure that we had on the screen a little while ago. He's talking about the temple of his body. In other words, if they killed him, he would rise from the dead three days later, and that's exactly what happened. Listen, listen, Jesus, I wanna read you his words. For this reason, the Father loves me, or is pleased with me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
everybody, don't you realize that nobody on the cross had to push his arm down? And Jesus wasn't like, stop! No. Jesus is the sovereign creator of all things. And he said, no one takes my life from me. He says, I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority um, to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. And so, man, when you think about the impact of this, Jesus willingly laid down his life, and then he took it up again. By the way, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, when you read the entire New Testament, you find out that Galatians 1.1 says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But then when you read the verses I just read, John 10.18, you see that the Son had authority to raise himself from the dead. But then when you get over to Romans chapter 8, verse 11, you find out that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. Question, is there a contradiction in the Bible? No, why? Because through the progressive revelation of the New Testament, we find out that there is one God, can you guys please say one God? <laughs> Eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and only God can raise anybody from the dead. And one day, if you know Christ, he's gonna raise you from the dead. Your soul is gonna be reattached to your remains, and yes, you are going to rise from the dead because God is so good. Thank God for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see now in verse 22, in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Said what? Destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. And they, look at the end of verse 22, believed the scripture. Everybody look at me real quick. Um, when Jesus Christ was cleansing the temple, did the New Testament exist at that time? No. No. When Jesus, at, right after he um, walked out of the grave, the New Testament had not been written yet. And so what scripture did the disciples believe in? We're talking about Hebrew scriptures, we're talking about the Old Testament. They believe the scripture that the word and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so, what scripture in the Old Testament specifically are we talking about? Well, around 1000 BC, David wrote this. Now, I really hope you tune in, because our Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is the greatest book on earth. And it's supernaturally inspired by the living God, and it's filled with prophecies. And did you guys know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament? You say, where? Right there. David, a thousand years BC, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your, please shout out the next two words, holy one, that's the Messiah, see corruption. And so David, last line, was not talking about himself there. In fact, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to a big crowd of Jews, right? And he referenced this verse right here, and he tells everybody, David's not talking about himself. In fact, okay, follow me. We can go down to David's grave right now, and that's where his body is, and his body absolutely has been 
corrupted. And so guess what? If David, as he writes this, a thousand years before Christ, is um, his dead body saw corruption, who in the world, last line, is this holy one whose dead body would never see corruption? And the answer is the Messiah. And the reason the Messiah's body didn't see corruption is because his body wasn't in the grave long enough to decompose. He marched out of his grave victorious over sin and death and hell. That's our Christ. I mean, allow the Holy Spirit this afternoon to impact you with the enormity of the truth that I'm talking about right here. Who in the world do you know that can predict their death and their resurrection and then accomplish it? Nobody. Why? Because nobody can do this but God. But Jesus Christ several times in his life, he not only predicted his death and resurrection, he accomplished it. And after he rose from the grave, over 500 people saw him alive after he had been dead. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you got to come to grips with today. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not playing games here. We're not playing church here. We're talking about a fact of history. It's time to wake up. It's time to to raise yourself out of your spiritual apathy and realize the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. And you've got to deal with that. You can't just say, I don't really care or I don't wanna make a decision about that. Or maybe later on. No, he's risen. He's alive right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he wants to be in a relationship with you. And if you haven't turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, what are you waiting for? He will absolutely change your life if you'll let him. Last three verses. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And someone goes, yeah, great, woohoo. Well, not yet, hold on a minute. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he's omniscient. He knew all people. And verse 25 says, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so John, in his gospel, if I've already said several times, he lists eight miraculous signs that prove Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But John, by by no means did he put in all of the signs and miracles Jesus did. If he did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world, right? to contain all, the, all of this. And so John does not write about all the signs Jesus did in his ministry. He didn't even record the signs that Jesus did on this Passover feast where we are in our Bible right now. But the signs that Jesus did at this Passover feast, they were stunning. They were spectacular. They caught everybody's attention. They stunned the crowd. And what was their response in verse 23? It says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. Isn't that a good thing, Pastor? No, not really, because it says in verse 24 and 25 
that when Jesus looked in their hearts, he did not entrust himself to them. In fact, everybody look at me. In verse 23, the word believed, I actually put in quotation marks. Why? The reason why is because this was spurious faith. Now before I tackle that, I wanna talk about his omniscience briefly. Henry Alford says about this text that we just read, nothing less than divine knowledge is here set forth. As the text now stands, it asserts an entire knowledge of all that is in all men. And so verse 25 is a clear example of Christ's omniscience as he looks straight into the hearts of these people who are wowed by his miracles, but sadly, what he sees in their hearts is a spurious faith. What he sees in their hearts is a fake faith. D.A. Carson wrote, quote, sadly their faith was spurious and Jesus knew it. He therefore did not entrust himself to the spurious convert. In other words, they weren't converts at all. The so-called, everybody look at me, belief that the crowd professed was based on being wowed by the supernatural. It wasn't genuine faith, seen in the fact that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And so Jesus knew the hearts of everybody in the first century. Jesus knows the hearts of everybody in the 21st century. But the most important thing is this, he knows what's in my heart and he knows what's in your heart. The question is, when he looks into your heart, does he see genuine faith? Listen to this verse from Paul. 2 Corinthians 13, five. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Now that's quite a verse because he's writing to a church. But how many, of you guys, how many of you guys know that not everybody in the church is saved? So he says, and this is so serious, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. And so in our church, I know that there's people who have genuine faith and I know there's people who are not saved yet. They may think they're saved, but they're not saved yet. And by the way, that's a biblical term, that's a good term, that's a term you see over and over in the New Testament. And so the question is, are you saved? Nothing's more important than that. Listen, all eternity depends on how, on, on, on whether that's True, saved, or not true, you're not saved. And so if you have any questions at all regarding your faith, whether it's real or not, after the closing prayer, we're gonna have our ministry team members that are gonna be up here. And listen, we're, we're not gonna push anything on anybody. But we would love to be able to share the love of Jesus with you and help you understand biblically how you can have assurance that you are saved. And so the gospel, as always, is on our website as well. 
calvarypsl.com, click on I'm new here, click on knowing Christ. And so if you're listening right now, say amen. Here's my encouragement. I know there's lots of people in this room, there's lots of people uh, who are watching right now. My encouragement is go to that page, click on Knowing Christ, prayerfully read the Gospel of Grace straight from the Bible, and then believe in who Jesus is and what he did for you. Who's Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man. What did he do for us? He died on the cross to pay for our sins because the wages of sin is death. He doesn't want you and I to go to hell and pay for our own sins, and so he died in our place and he rose from the dead. There's no good work you and I could ever do to earn our salvation, and so prayerfully read it, read the gospel, and then turn to Christ in repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of your life. You know, if you'll do that, you will experience something we're gonna study next week. You'll experience the new birth. You will be born again. And then, after you're saved, follow the Lord publicly in believer's baptism. 